you for being here this morning. I know the roads were tough. We're, many of our friends can't make it today, but pray for them. It's not easy not being in church when you wish you could be here. But today we are concluding our sermon series. We've been going over the benefits of salvation found in Psalm 103 and how we are to give thanks for them, how we're to respond to them, what God has done for us. And the first benefit we went over was the cleansing in Christ. He forgives us. He heals us in a real and tangible way. We next talked about uh, how Christ redeems us from the pit, which kind of seems like a foreign term, but Christ himself delivers us from death. He defeats death, and ultimately the resurrection is a promise to us. Third, we went over God's hased, his steadfast love, his loyal love. God is the most faithful being in the universe to his people. He always keeps his promises, and he showed us his utmost faithfulness by sending his one and only son. And this morning, we are going over the last benefit of salvation, God's providential provision. For the psalm says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Church, our God provides and satisfies us with good. And this good that he provides, it's it's all-encompassing. It ranges from things like food, clothing, and shelter, real bodily needs, to things even including our salvation and ultimately life from the dead itself. The problem, though, as we will experience through our three scripture readings, it isn't that God is negligent to provide. He's not. God is not negligent. But it's that we, people, we tend to abuse the good our faithful creator has provided, and we make that what he has given us, his gifts, we turn them into our God. We worship the creature rather than the creator. Or we get angry that our God is not willing to provide in a way that we want him to. You ever told Jesus that he ain't leading your life right? You ever told Jesus that he ain't giving you what you needed? We tend to do that. We think that he lacks in his service to us as if he's not doing enough to give. But thankfully, Jesus provides the path to freedom from both of these erroneous views so that we can actually enjoy the good our God has provided for us and find peace and rest for our souls. So if you can and are willing, please stand for the reading of sacred scriptures. As we go on this journey exploring this problem, Hear now the words of the living and true God. A reading from Exodus 17, 1 through 7. The word says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, And take in your hand the staff with which which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, 
which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Our second reading, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 7, an epistle. The apostle says, talking to the church, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things take place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Our third scripture reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, 25 through 34. Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thanks be to God for his word. Pastor Dillard, are you in here? Would you pray for the congregation, please? Thank you for praying, Pastor. Church, we are to be thankful for God's providential provision. And this begins with acknowledging God's willingness and his ability to actually provide for his people. And that's why we're going to turn to our Exodus story, our first preaching point, provision provided. Our Exodus reading takes place only a couple months after God delivers the people from Egypt, after he rescues them from slavery, after he baptizes them through the Red Sea. And they've reached a point in their wilderness travels where they have a real need. 
They need water because they're in the desert and they cannot provide it for themselves. But this is not the first time an incident like this has occurred because only a chapter before this, only one chapter, only about a month or so before this incident we read about this morning, the no water incident, the people had ran out of food. And in Exodus 16, they said this. It says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Church, this is... Let those words sink in deep. This is an awful thing to say about the living God, about the God who just delivered them out of Egypt. Because if you remember, in Egypt, they were slaves living under gross oppression and being forced to genocide their children. They were being forced to kill their babies, throwing them into the Nile. And here they are, scorning the Lord, scorning his salvation, treating it with contempt, saying, it would have been better to be back there, back in that place, because at least I got to eat bread. They were scorning God's salvation. But even in their rebellion, the Lord was gracious and merciful, and he was kind to them. He literally provided supernatural bread from heaven. The story of manna, you know, where it says every night the manna appeared and they gathered it. That's when that happened. Despite the fact they're basically saying, I would rather be a slave in a place of darkness and have to kill my babies because at least I could eat. And yet God still meets them where they're at. He gave them bread and quail. So you think that the lesson would have been learned, but they did not learn. And we are in a similar scene not much long later. The people, they're angry again, and they're acting desperate, grumbling at God again, and threatening his leaders again. We have no water. It's better to be back in slavery. It's the same attitude. It's the same heart condition. But in a similar way, God, in great patience and in great compassion, providentially, or providence is the fancy word to mean God intervenes in the course of human affairs. So God providentially provides for the people's real need for water. And he does it in a dramatic way. He has Moses strike the rock at Horeb, and the rock provided water for the people. In church, when we read stories like these, stories like these scattered throughout the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, they are to demonstrate to us the character of our heavenly father. He is a good and willing provider. And he's one that can provide in impossible ways. So if there's anything you can hear this morning, hear this. There is no need that you have, Christian, that God Almighty cannot meet. Amen? That's easy to say, but as we get to the application side, when we stare at a real need in the face, our hearts tend to sink. Our eyes droop from heaven down to the problem. And God's provision, he, he does it, he gives, he provides for us, I would say even in spite of us, in spite of our grumblings and our testing of him. The Israelites were saying these awful things about God and yet he still puts out his gracious hands with their real needs because his provision comes from a place of grace and mercy. It's always undeserved. When God provides, it's always undeserved. He simply provides because he loves, because he, that's who he is. It's his character to do so. God is simply good to his people and grants them everything they need for life and godliness. 
And yet, despite God's good character, despite God's providential provision, the supernatural manna and the bread and the quail and the water from the rock, besides all this stuff he meets his people in their real needs, our ancestors, as the scriptures testify through the whole Old Testament, still went astray, which is our second preaching point, provision perverted. And in our passage from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul He's, he's what he's talking about. He's going over the history of the people. He's going over the history of redemption, how God has saved his people, what he's done with them. And he's basically saying, as a warning to the church, as a warning to you and I 2,000 years even after his writings, he's saying this as a warning that even though the people had everything they needed, God met all their needs. I mean, he took them into the land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them water in the desert. He gave them manna and quail and all that stuff, everything they needed they still went astray. They had everything they needed, just like you and I do in Christ. They were provided for physically and spiritually, and yet they still were idol worshipers. The people kept turning their provision, the good gifts that God gave them, the bounty of the harvest that God gave them. It became a snare to them. They became entangled with it. Just kind of some testimony from Scripture. When you read the, the Old Testament stories from the prophets, God would provide rain to grow crops, to have this abundance of food, and the people would praise Baal or Baal. They would worship another god, saying Baal provided, because Baal was the rain god. God provided marriage and intimacy and union and real family, and the people would have orgies worshiping Ashtoreth and the Asherah poles and all forms of awful pagan worship. God would provide children and posterity to people, and they would worship Molech by burning their babies to death in a bronze furnace. That's what they would do with their provision. God gave and gave and gave everything they needed. And the people kept turning to idols again and again. And not only that, as Paul said in that Corinthians, it says they even had Christ. The rock that Moses struck, they even had Christ and they still rejected him. That's what Paul's telling them. They scorned the rock of their salvation. Time and time again, if you read the history of the Old Testament... The people would have abundance, and then they would turn from God and become enslaved to idolatry again and again and again. They abused the good gifts God gave. That's the heart of idolatry, loving gifts, loving provision, rather than the provider, rather than the gift giver. That's what they were doing over and over and over again. And after many centuries of God pleading with his people through the prophets, crying out to them to return to him again and again and again. Eventually, the line was drawn in the sand and God brought brought judgment upon his people for their gross idolatry in order to purify them, to free them. And he sent them into exile, destroying many in the process. But even exile into Babylon did not cure the people of their deep-rooted sickness and their idolatry because even upon the return it says that they would they refused to rebuild the temple and tended to their own needs first they would withhold tithes when you read the latter prophets they would even withhold tithes given to god and god again started that process he with sent the locusts he withheld the rain and he kept saying through the latter prophets do you are you still not getting this we just came back from exile and you're still doing like your forefathers you're not trusting me fully 
And then by the time you get to the, test, the New Testament, we have the description of the Sadducees and Pharisees, which unapologetically, the gospel writers tell us that they are lovers of money. Like that, that's a heavy accusation. And yet the gospel writers say those guys, all that godly stuff that they do is just a farce. They just love money. They love power. And they are people filled with pride and self-righteousness. It's like, it's a bad place. The remnant that returned may not have worshiped idols by name anymore, but they were just as idolatrous as their forefathers. But God and his grace and in his mercy kept providing and eventually in the fullness of the times, he gave the perfect gift. He provided perfectly. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Our third preaching point, provision perfected. In our gospel reading, the Lord Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, which we're getting ready to start celebrating that Advent right around the corner. Advent begins next week. It's the celebration that God came in the flesh. Jesus came to teach and show the people what God's character and kingdom are like in all their fullness. And here, without any hesitation and with great gentleness, the Lord Jesus Christ confirms what we already know to be true that God knows our every need and his kingdom is one of perfect provision. Just as God knew the needs of the people in the desert thousands of years before the time of Christ and struck the rock to provide water, God knows the needs of all people, of all time, of all places, which includes you, which includes me, because the living God does not change. He is good because he is good. And he provides because we need it, even when we are ungrateful. And then Jesus, though, not only confirms to us the character of God, what God's kingdom is like, he then makes a precious promise to you and to me and all who will listen. A promise because he knows our physical needs, but he also knows we have a spiritual problem. You and I and all the human beings, we have the tendency to not trust God and to worry about our provision and we keep our eyes fixed upon earthly gain. We love and pursue wealth and houses and food and money and all that stuff. And we end up working hard to provide for ourselves, patting ourselves on the back, congratulating ourselves that we are our own provider, thinking that we ourselves brought this to us. And it just doesn't make sense. Because when you ultimately think you're your own provider, you're basically saying you're God. If you think that by the strength of your back, the craftiness of your mind, the cleverness of your hands, if you think that that is what provides for you, you are still in idolatry. You think you provide for yourself. And that's not the testimony of scripture. Only the living God can provide for his people. Because this is how pagans think. And this is how they live. They live for the here and the now, providing great wealth for themselves, thinking that they are their own masters. They build barns, fill them up, and then once they get filled, as Jesus said, they'll build bigger barns and then fill that up. And then once that gets filled up, they'll just build bigger barns and it just, it just doesn't end. They just live for stuff here and now and comfort here and now. But that's not God's will. So Jesus makes us a promise one that is to bring great comfort and assurance to our weak hearts. 
to cure us of our idolatry, of our self-sufficiency. He promises that when we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is just a fancy way of describing pursuing Jesus and knowing and loving the king, because Jesus is the king of the kingdom, Jesus promises that all of our needs will be met and we will find peace, rest, and total provision. Because in the gospel, our God provides both for the soul and for the body. He provides our physical and spiritual needs. He provides for the total person. For consider this, by dying on the cross, Jesus takes away our sins and idolatry, freeing the heart to trust God in simple childlike ways. When I consider my own daughter, she comes up to me, and if you've had kids, you know what that's like. Sometimes it's annoying. But they'll be like, snacks. Dad, I need snacks. I need treats. Most of her wants are illegitimate. But you know when she asks for food? When she's genuinely hungry, guess who's going to feed her? Any sane parent would. That's the childlike faith Christ frees our heart to have. And by rising from the dead, Jesus assures us of his word that God can overcome all obstacles to provide for us. Not even death can stop God from taking care of us. And by ascending into the heavens, probably the, the crown jewel of the Christian gospel, by Jesus Christ himself ascending up into the heavens, seated on his throne, seating as king of the cosmos, guys, he owns it all. The guy that made all the stuff is really the owner of all the stuff. There ain't nothing Jesus don't own if you're from the Midwest. I mean, we, we, we say that stuff in songs, like I, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He really means that. It's not that he just stops owning cattle on the thousandth and one hill. A thousand normally means like totality. It's the big number for a full expression. Jesus owns everything and everyone and all the earth's bounty. There is nothing he does not possess. And if the king possesses it all, why would he not provide for you? And that's the craziness of it when we doubt our king. But the gospel frees us from being slaves to idolatry. It frees us from being like our ancestors who when they came out of Egypt scorned God's salvation saying it's better to die as slaves in Egypt, it's better to die as slaves in the kingdom of darkness than to have God as my king and provider. It frees our hearts to trust the living God. Because think about this, if in the gospel God is willing to give his only son for your and I's salvation to strike him on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, just as he struck the rock in the wilderness to provide water, which was Christ, we just read. Church, you can trust God to provide for you. If God can take care of your eternal soul, if he can take care of you going down to death itself, do you really doubt that he can provide food and bills and money for bills and stuff like that? Like clearly the logic is no, but why is it do we struggle with that still? Why is that such a temptation? God cares for you and me and your spiritual and temporal needs. He cares for your entire person. He cares for your family. And unlike the people of old, when they scorned God in the wilderness, saying it's better that we had died, church, God does not save us to destroy us with food, with lack of food and lack of shelter and lack of the physical needs. God, God saves us to take care of us. He's a good father. He's a good king. We have nothing to fear when we are part of Jesus' kingdom. Amen?
But for those of you listening, maybe here, or whoever hears this message in the future, if you have not acted on the gospel promise to pursue Christ, to pursue his kingdom, to call upon him as your God and king, to bow the knee to Jesus, then you must know and understand that you are still a slave to idolatry. You are still pursuing things of the earth. You live just for this life. You're only living to feed your body and your appetites for this day. You're not thinking clearly about what comes up next. And Jesus very plainly warns us in the gospel message that those who do so, who live only for this life, will not inherit the next. For he tells us, what profit, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? And if you haven't called upon Christ as your king, this is you. But you can escape your fate. You can come to that place of rest and peace. Listen to God's promises in Jesus and be free. Trust Jesus' words and pursue him. Repent and be baptized and embrace all the promises God has made to you and to your family and to your children's children. God has offering you even now provision and peace and safety and comfort and rest in this life that you're going to be taken care of. And it's, it's real. It's for you. Only God has the depth of true riches and they are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But for those of us who have entered into God's kingdom and have embraced this promise of total provision, how can we show thanks for these things? How do we actually express ourselves in a genuine Christian way? Because it's one thing to say, I know God provides for me, but then how do we actually like live and do that? And so first part, the first point we've been having through this whole sermon series is worship as those who have been provided for. God says, pursue this, worship me. When you come into worship, are you coming in with that attitude that says, this is the true God who takes care of me? When you come into worship, are you still doubting God? Or is you have a good conscience knowing that when you come to meet with God on Sunday morning or when you're at home in your prayer closet, are you coming to God in faith saying, I know that I know you are my provider. You are Jehovah Jireh. You take care of me. And really, when I think of this being a worship thing, consider Christian worship in the fullest expression. It's when we understand the end. The psalm says God provides good so our strength is renewed like eagles, like our youth will be renewed. In the resurrection, the greatest good that God gave you is his son. And just think, one day it comes. If, you, if you've gotten old in this life and you know what it's like to feel the strength of youth be sapped from your body, if you know what it's like to feel old, the greatest provision God has given you is the promise of the resurrection, that you will be filled with strength and vitality and youth once again. You will live again one day. That's the greatest good God has provided for us is life itself in his son in the resurrection. So when you come to worship, is that the attitude of worship you have? This is the place I meet with the God who provides. And even think our communion. Every week, we partake of the Son of God, whose death and resurrection provides the real forgiveness of sins, and we meet with him every week. Is that where your heart and mind is at? Or are you still worried about the God who I claim to worship cannot pay my rent? Think about these things. One is from a place of faithlessness, and one is from a place of trust. Second off, live, actually live as those who have been provided for. 
And I think this is where we actually see some of those practical like ways to challenge our own hearts. And I think above all things, understand your value to God. And sometimes we don't want to, in our culture, we talk about self-worth a lot. And I kind of I get turned off by that really easy because it's nonsense talk. But even in our gospel reading, Jesus talked, said things like, look at the animals, look at the grass, look at the flowers. God cares about those things. Do you not understand, mortal, that God cares for you so much more than those things? Know your value and worth to God. You are made in his image. You actually have intrinsic value that other created things don't. God cares for you and knows you personally. And so as you're walking around in this life, the reason we come to those places of doubt of God's provision is probably because we really don't understand his value that he has for us. You are God's children through Jesus Christ. You are his people through Jesus Christ. You have great value to the living God. Remind yourselves of these realities. When you see things that seem impossible, when the bills and the medical bills come that just can't be paid, that's when you gotta sit back and say, my God knows me, I'm valued by him, he's gonna take care of it. Remind yourself of the truth. Second, fight the urge to grumble and blaspheme God. Just as our ancestors in the desert, in the wilderness, they kept scorning God every time a real need came up, rather than praying and falling on their knees with Moses and calling out to God like, God, we know you're good. You saved us from Egypt. We need water though. Will you provide it for us? Their instinct was to scorn God saying, look how God isn't with us. He can't provide for us. He's not with us. I'm telling you, that's a bad place to be. If your default attitude to real needs in this life are to scorn and be angry at God, I think you need to do a heart check because your heart's not in a good place. You're scorning God and you're not seeing life clearly through Christian lenses. But there is a real place though, when we do come to those real needs, when real fear does creep up, that it's okay to talk to God in a very intimate way about your real fear and your real need. I'm not saying not to do that because there are times in our lives when it seems such a big obstacle that we can say, God, I'm afraid. I don't know how I'm gonna pay this bill tomorrow. I don't know how you're going to take care of my children. That type of stuff, that's okay. That's that childlike faith that says, but God, I know you can. But if you're angry at God, man, ask God to work on your heart on those things. Third thing, kind of piggybacking on that, don't let fear and anxiety, the fear of scarcity, not having enough as a Christian cannot control you. It will not control you like it does the pagans. Jesus tells them, he says, the Gentiles seek after things. They seek after food, clothing, and shelter, but they don't understand. They're letting their fear of not having enough or wanting more control them. That's not Christian. That's an idolatry problem. That's kind of the heart that we're talking about today. Do you love getting? And in this life, are you ever satisfied? Because I'm sure, like I've experienced, I'm sure many of you experience. When is enough money? When's enough anything, right? That's, that's the question. When is enough enough? And if you say there's never enough, that's when you can be honest and say, God, I need you to work on this heart of mine because there's never enough God will give you at that point. There's never enough. Or maybe sometimes you're like me when you're not appreciative of what God has actually given you. I remember I was talking with 
uh, Cliff this morning, there was a, when the housing market's got really crazy right now and the interest rates are so high, my wife and I are at a point in our life where you think, we're programmed to think, we need to buy a house. We're grown-ups. We have kids now. We should buy a house. That's the normal thing to do in the course of growing up. And then all of a sudden you can't get it. And I remember probably a year ago, I was just getting really just cranky about that, getting angry at God and saying, I can't believe it. You know, this isn't enough. And, you know, and when I was like that, I find the Holy Spirit just, just kicked me in the tail and said, but you have a roof over your head, right? I was like, yeah. Is that not enough? Is that not enough for you right now? I'm providing for you. You know those talks with God where it's the words without words? It was like one of those moments. And I had to be reminded. I had to repent of that. Like, God, you're right. I'm, I'm angry that I'm not where I think I should be in life, owning what I think I should own, et cetera, et cetera, whether it's cars, houses, or whatever. My focus wasn't right. And God had to do some surgery on this heart and remind me to just be grateful. We have clothes on our backs, food in our bellies, and a roof over our heads. And you know what the irony is? I pray with that with my kid every night. With Julia, when we say our nighttime prayers, we give thanks for roof over our heads. We say, recite that. And here I was, what a hypocrite, still being upset that we couldn't afford a house because interest rates are like at 9%. And God really had to have me like come to Jesus moment on that. And saying, you have a roof, you have a home, why are you so upset? So don't be like me. Don't let fear and anxiety control you because that's how the pagans live. And God had to check my own heart on that. And last but not least, rest in God's care. I mean, Jesus keeps saying these things and he's saying in different ways in our gospel passage, but he concludes with the same idea. Don't worry about tomorrow. Guys, we are... are, are Ability to perceive what God is doing in this world and in our lives is way too small for us to worry about how tomorrow is going to play out. The stock market could crash tomorrow. You could be like Job and lose it all tomorrow. You just don't know. And the fear of tomorrow destroys the joy of salvation for today. And we just had Thanksgiving. And it's supposed to be this annual reminder of our time to actually focus and be thankful. And so the question we have is, are we just enjoying the good salvation the good provision God has for us right now and today? Or are we so worried about what tomorrow is going to bring that we miss the simple joys of the food and the clothing and the shelter and the family and all that stuff God's given for today? Is that you? Rest in God's care. Don't let tomorrow suck the joy from today. It's a painful way to live. And so as we come to the altar, is there any distorted thinking, any anger towards God, whether you come down or pray in your seat, or whatever, is there anything in your heart that still is clinging to idolatry, still clinging that I need more, that I'm not grateful for what God's given me, all the application stuff today. Is there something that you need to be taught? Like, what did you hear today that you need to respond to? We're going to have a time to invitation. If you want to come down and pray, be here to pray with you. If you need to pray in your seat, pray in your seat. Or if you know somebody that's lost, who fits this description, who, who only lives for the money, who only lives for today and doesn't understand eternal things, pray for them. I know Christmas and Thanksgiving are just, they're just happening, time for family to get together. And it's a great reminder that many of our families may not be Christian. Who do you know who needs to be prayed for? Let's go to the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness. You are a good and faithful king. And I pray that you would help your words 
change the way we think and live and breathe, that you'd help us not worry, help us not cling to idolatry, help us not cling to fear and anxiety that you are not a good and faithful provider. And even now at the top of my head, Lord, I'm just thinking, it says, you are the true husband of the church. You are the good, faithful husband of the church. You take care of your bride. There's nobody in this room who has called upon the name of Jesus that you will not meet them where they are at and take care of them in this life and in the next. Help us, Lord, have that attitude of gratitude, rejoicing in the good salvation of God and your provision. And help us be free from worry and lay down those worries at the feet of the cross every moment of every day and develop that intimate relationship with you to trust you more. In your mighty name we pray, Jesus.